Hello and welcome back to the Norman Lowell Interviews, the podcast where we interview Norman Lowell, an author, artist and the founder and leader of Imperium Europa. This is our fifth podcast today and the topic is the five prerogatives of the Imperium. Thank you for joining me again today, Norman. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd just like to begin by asking you a pretty straightforward question. What are the five prerogatives of the Imperium? Very good. Pleasure to be back, Julian. First of all, on a breve premessa, a short premise before we start. These podcasts, this is the fifth, isn't it? These podcasts are the gist of our political philosophy. And I urge interested listeners to diffuse them amongst worthy recipients. Not the many too many, it's useless, they won't understand. But those who are receptive, those who understand us, the high political message, they are normally the uh, prime movers, the leaders in conversation at the bars, the restaurants, the office, the shop floor, and they influence others. So it's very important to diffuse these podcasts amongst the worthy so that we increase the activists, the political soldiers. Now, having said that, you asked me, what are the five prerogatives of the Imperium? Let us put it in more poetic, in a more poetic phrase. What are those untouchable five apple trees in the Imperium garden? These five prerogatives are the masculine side of the Imperium, the realm of the elite. They are, let's go through them, spirituality, race, high culture, high politics and territory. Let us take them one by one. Spirituality. This is the apex of the pyramid. We ascribe to it a primary importance. We of Imperium Europa are cosmotheists. We adhere to that nature-oriented belief, cosmotheism, the white man as antenna to the gods, attuned with the cosmic force, with the whole universe, the cosmos. We believe that religion, any formalized religion, is a husk, the outer bark of a hollow tree. Let us take Christianity, for example for it is this disease of the mind that has almost destroyed the white race. Christianity evolved in the ghettos of Rome and proliferated largely amongst the lower strata of society throughout the Roman Empire. To the Roman nobility, it was a detestable religion with its appeal for humility, forgiveness, tolerance, and resignation. But beneath this message lay another, the snarling hatred for the strong, 
the noble, the competent, and the truly good. And it was this message that attracted the many too many to its fold. Within a few centuries, like a virus infecting the whole body of Europe, it managed to supplant the old gods who had become worn out. By the second century, even the emperor had converted. The cross triumphed and stood on the Roman hills, where formerly the imperial eagle surveyed the empire. Even Buddhism, the other slave religion, preaching universal salvation, does not stoop so low as Christianity, at least when faced by oppression, the Buddhist retreats a few miles down the river to fish. In time, he sees the corpse of his aggressor floating down before him. Thus, the Buddhist sins by omission. On the other hand, the Christian sins by commission. He actually turns the other cheek to his tormentor. Thus, Christianity is anti-survival, anti-life. It is the greatest aberration of the instincts. If taken seriously and adhered to, if followed to its logical conclusion, Christianity would kill its believer. How can one turn the other cheek to trousered apes rioting in San Francisco or Watts? Where would present Christians be had our forefathers not fought bloody battles that stopped the Muslims in Spain and France and at the gates of Vienna? They would be wearing sandals and turbans. Two thousand Christmases later, this disease has debilitated us to the extent where the white man has come to carry a guilt complex for his very existence. Examples are too many to enumerate. White girls, healthy, of childbearing age, forsake motherhood and follow an emaciated Albanian sister of the poor to the best holes of Asia, tendering to the festering wounds of starving Hindus. Christianity is a Shandala religion. Young men and women, bereft of a vision, of a philosophy of life, embrace Christianity and as missionaries part to Africa, saving black babies from being devoured by fellow blacks. They scream at us and demand that we admit these unassimilable aliens within our midst. And just in case we ever run out of enemies, the Pope encourages these third worlders to keep up their feckless fecundity, admonishing them against birth control. All this would not really be a problem if our young people had to have a vision of Imperium Europa, underpinned by an authentic belief fit for the white race, a vision that would not leave that vacuum which Christianity now fills. The unfortunate thing is that the most honest, the most idealistic of our youth, they are the ones who are taking Christianity seriously. 
They are the ones pouring, thumping and flipping continuously through that most evil book ever recorded in the annals of literature, a book brimming with hatred by a bloodthirsty tribe of psychopaths imbued with a burning sense of mission for world power, a tribe describing themselves as the chosen ones. You seem to allude that the core book of Christianity has Jewish roots. All right, let me elaborate. This book, let's be clear, the Bible, a book describing in gory detail every kind of murder, deicide, regicide, patricide, matricide, fratricide, infanticide, the sacrifice of the firstborn to an implacable god, the mass slaughter of entire nations together with their domestic animals, the murder of every firstborn in every household in the quiet of the night, the slaughter of babies under two years, cannibalism, real horrifying holocausts. A book written by a psychotic people at the best of times, raving lunatics proclaiming themselves messengers of God and bearing the usual litany of self-abnegation, self-torture, self-denial, self-immolation in order to quieten, to quieten the most natural feelings and impulses. A book listing every kind of sexual perversion and the pièce de résistance the wild cabalistic imbecility of the revelations. One must admit that the least harmful of all Christian denominations <laughs> are the Catholics. At least they don't take it seriously. Luckily for the white race, Catholics only go through the motions of Christianity. Some attend Mass every Sunday wearing decent clothes, and that's about all. Catholics are not so stupid as to turn the other cheek to an aggressor that blow him up. They are not ingenious enough as to bleed themselves white by giving their all and following Christ. The white race has survived, in part, because of Catholicism. We survived in spite of Christianity, and certainly not because of it. Through listening to your speeches, I've heard you mention the spiritual man many times. What do you mean by this? Excellent. The worst reason is that committed by the spiritual man. I remember I had given a podcast some years back, Etradiman Spirituali, and it can be found on our website, imperium-europa.org. It's podcast number three. Whole civilizations have perished due to the betrayal of the spiritual man. The Aztecs and the Incas come to mind, for example. Betrayed by their shaman, who demanded ever more hearts torn out of prisoners of war and offered to an insatiable god. The power of the spiritual man is immense and dominates high politics. Example, Christianity with Emperor Constantine, where a sick, morbid religion destroyed the Roman Empire. A 
and for the last 2,000 years has enfeebled the white race to the point of extinction. Jesus, a fictitious character invented by Saul, the Pharisee, in order to destroy Rome. Jesus never mentioned once anywhere in the annals of the time. Jesus, for whom millions lived and are living a life of guilt, of self-loathing, overshadowed by sin. Jesus, in whose name millions were tortured, murdered. Jesus, that Charles Manson of the white race. My book, Jesus the Usurper, Murderer of Christ, distributed by Amazon, can be found on our website, vivamalta.net. Uh, so moving on, race is the other important issue that falls under the realm of the Imperium. Could you please elaborate on this? Race. We treated race in our podcast number one, remember? If the race is mixed, then that race, whatever it is, is dead. And that is why those rodents in human form, our most lethal enemy, want to mix us. An Imperium for Europe is only and, with a few assimilable exceptions, none else. All others expelled as outcasts. We will return to the laws of Manu. Muslims will be the easiest to get rid of. We will reach a grand accord with their mullahs, Mahdi's and Madras. We will force them to recall all Muslims to return to their countries of origin primarily in the Maghreb, <coughs> under penalty of a fatwa. And Muslims will obey their religious leaders and will pack their bags in undignified haste. The Indians will simply leave quietly, as they, as they did in Uganda with Idi Amin. We only need to match them. Of course, more energetic measures will have to be taken against the obdurate obstinate Africans. They will be given a choice of the carrot or the stick. The white race, the four cousin peoples, the Anglo-Saxons, the Teutons, the Slavs and the Latins, a judicious long-term organic mixture living within the sealed borders of our Imperium, free to pursue our cosmic destiny. And what about high culture? What do you mean by this? Ah, high culture, the realm of the elite, a minority of less than a quarter of a million spread over the white world, representing the best of this biological aristocracy, which is the European race, a minority of high culture bearers, a minority of supermen, who are the prime target of the international manipulators. These last are always on the lookout for these absolute individualists, ready to vilify them through the controlled press, ready to go all lengths to crucify them, if need be, exterminate them. The inhuman, sublimated into the absolute individualist in the Nietzschean sense, Disciplined, inured to solitude, 
formed into the philosopher-soldier, the statesman, the elite, the superman of the future, a new heroic aristocracy, an aristocracy of the spirit, of character, of a total view of life, an innate, unerring Weltanschauung. Art has been quite a big part of your life. Does it fall under high culture? Yes. High culture, high art, can flourish only under the patronage of a decadent surfeit of a powerful and egoistic patron. A patron who teams up with the artist master, who commissions a mad genius of an artist for his own, the patron's selfish, egoistic, innermost, most profound artistic yearning, craving, and taste. Yes, art will only reach its acme when the decadent ambiance of a culture is about to collapse. As a full moon begins to wane at the highest point of its splendor, so does power start to sap at the peak of its expression, high arts. But there is another reason, certainly more fundamental, more profound for this seeming tragedy, the tragedy of the decadence of art. And it is this, man is intrinsically nihilistic. Man will always risk till the end, till he loses. Man, superior man, will always defy death and relish at the spectacle of destruction, be it the destruction of his civilization, his cities and buildings, or be it himself, self-immolation, self-destruction. And to make this destruction of himself more tragic, more resounding, more spectacular, more worthwhile, more artistic, Man, the superman, overcomes himself, forges himself, and creates great artistic works in order to then destroy himself amidst his creations. Hence Socrates and his serene acceptance of the poisoned chalice. Hence Mishima, his literature, his bodybuilding, his fetishes, and his heroic suicide by seppuku. Hence that superlative artistic achievement of the hero, Götterdammerung. You emphasize high politics. What do you mean by this? <laughs> high politics. In the coming imperium, a lower house would comprise within it all the economic categories. It would run on a qualified vote system and restrict itself to economics never above, but subject to politics. This would be the domain of the higher house, composed of a much smaller elite, including the military caste. It would retain the prerogatives of high politics and race. Only in extreme situations would the higher house intervene in economic affairs, when these imperil the higher eternal values. It would have power to overrule the lower house. And above this higher house, assisted by a sacred elite, 
stands the sacred sovereign embodying the organic state. Only such a future organic state can change the mad suicidal race by modern man, where the word work and workers will lose that mystification given it by both communism and capitalism, where the words proletariat and bourgeoisie will disappear from our dictionary, where a new complete man will again work for sufficiency and comfort and have the time to find and be himself, where the humblest citizen, though poor, will feel fulfilled in his status and sense that power of being and belonging which is in him. And Norman, how do you distinguish between nation and state, between democracy and degeneracy? Good question. Here one must make a distinction of the utmost importance that between nation and state. The former and nation is female. It is composed of the plebeians and is concerned with economics, demography, health and the social well-being of the people. In the nation all these considerations take precedence over high politics. <coughs> Both communism and democracy, two sides of the same coin, are feminine, anti-heroic, anti-aristocracy, anti-male. In fact, democracy is the lowest form of government, where prostitute politicians stoop to conquer, pandering to the basest wishes of the people, promising anything and everything at the expense of high politics. The pathetic spectacle of democracy, petty politicians fawning over the masses, courting their votes. Now this is contrary to the natural order, for it is the masses who need the superior man, not vice versa. It is the sheep who need the shepherd. Thus, the unqualified vote means the degradation and debasement of the state, the total abandonment of the male political sphere to the female, to the nation, the people, the masses, where ultimately the citizen is reduced to a slave. Now, the highest authority in a nation is the state. This is male, imbued with a sacred high dominance, quite apart, distinct and distant from the nation. Perfect example of it are the Holy Roman Empire and the Prussian state, where, at the apex, a sacred elite, the Teutonic Order, stood as guardian of the eternal values. Authority in the state must be absolute, or it is no authority at all. It is unconditional, not subject to any other power, or right. It is not subject to the law, but above it, princeps allegibus solutos. The state is not and should never be a representation of society. It is above it, for the political sphere is separate and above the social 
purely economic and social aspect of the nation. And on the last prerogative, territory, why does this fall under the Imperium? Oh, yes, it does. In the coming Imperium, territory will not be ceded. We will defend every inch of our territory, whatever the cost. The rising population of Europeans will require vast territories around the globe, stretching from every Great Britain to Vladivostok, across the Bering Strait to Alaska, Canada, and the free USA. Huge swathes of land in Latin America, a cleaned-up Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, and Chile. The whole Panama Isthmus will be ours. Australia will become a country reserved for whites only, as will New Zealand. A short, sharp repatriation program of non-Europeans will see to this. We will go back to Africa, whiplash in hand, and force the Kafrid back to his original territory, the Congo Basin. We only have to place huge food depots and bottles of gin ever north, and the African will walk hundreds of miles for a free meal. Of course, the gin will help the blacks settle their differences amicably. To conclude, these are the five prerogatives of the Imperium masculine side, the realm of the elite, the five untouchable apple trees in the Imperium garden. Spirituality, race, high culture, high politics, and territory. Ave! Uh, thank you, Norman. That concludes today's podcast. As usual, if there's anyone who's interested in getting involved in, with us and is interested in our ideas, please email info at imperium-europa.org. Thank you.